We come to the second chapter of Acts, and we are given a history of the New Testament church on its most important day. Acts chapter 2, the first 13 verses have already been read to you. You have had read to you a prophecy of Joel the prophet from Joel chapter 2 that Peter is going to fulfill as he explains what is happening on this day. And you have heard from John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ's promise of the gift of the Holy Ghost. We have a church of 120 members. Not all that dissimilar from our own. Meeting in the city of Jerusalem 50 days after Passover, after the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. And this chapter will describe what took place on that day. And it's the greatest day in the history of the New Testament church when God poured out the Holy Spirit to Jesus Christ and He in turn gave it to His church. And so we see here the history of our church that began in Jerusalem and has continued to this day. And we have this same blessing of the Spirit of God upon us as they received upon them that day. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had ascended up to heaven, the first chapter tells us. But before he ascended, he assembled his disciples together and told them, don't you leave Jerusalem. This is chapter 1, verse 4. He said, wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. And you just had that read to you in John 16. Jesus Christ made it very clear in John 14, 15, and 16 that God was going to give him the Holy Spirit, in a way that the saints of God had not had Him before. And He was going to pour out that Spirit and send that Holy Comforter to strengthen, bless, and comfort His disciples in His absence. He said in verse 5 of chapter 1, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And that was one week's time before He baptized them with the Holy Ghost. We come to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. And I'm going to read a verse and comment on it and hope that we reason in the Scriptures, opening and alleging in a way that rightly divides the word of truth and instructs you from what takes place in this chapter. Preaching is to read in the word of God distinctly and to give the sense. Amen. And we're going to see here the first Spirit-filled sermon other than by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Peter does. Peter quotes five verses from Joel. He quotes four verses from Psalm 16. He reasons out of both of them and comes to a conclusion. And that's his sermon. That is Bible preaching. There's not a single story here of Peter when he was fishing. And Peter could have told stories about his fishing experiences all day long. If you recognize the temperament of Peter, and you recognize the career that he had before he was a disciple, you know he could have regaled his audience. But he's going to preach the Word of God. And so we're going to follow the same practice. We have 120 frightened and intimidated souls. They've been hiding and fearful for the last 40 days. And now we approach the 50th day, and so we come to Acts 2 and verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, 
They were all with one accord in one place. We can learn from this verse that it occurred in the day of Pentecost. Now, all of you know about a place in Washington, D.C. called the Pentagon. And it's called the Pentagon because it's in a building shaped like a pentagram. So we've got penta twice. What does penta mean in those cases? Five. And in this case, Pentecost is 50. There are 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. That's what the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy tells us about this feast. It's also called the Feast of Weeks. Because they were to wait seven weeks after Passover, plus a day, to come to the day of Pentecost. It's also called the, the Feast of First Fruits. Because the very first fruits of the wheat harvest were brought and waved before the Lord in trust of His blessing that there be a whole lot more to follow. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see the Holy Ghost poured out on this church and there was a whole lot more to follow after this day of Pentecost as well. But when you read the word Pentecost, it's 50 days after Passover. Jesus was three days and three nights in the tomb. Jesus was 40 days showing Himself alive by many infallible proofs to His disciples. And then He said, wait, do not depart from Jerusalem, wait for Me. And chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 tells us they waited for Him in an upper room where they were all praying together. That's a good activity to be in if you expect the Holy Spirit of God to come upon you into your life and into your family's life. To be in prayer. The other thing we notice from verse 1 of chapter 2 is that when the day of Pentecost did arrive, where were they? What were they doing? They were in one place. How many of them were there? All of them. What kind of a relationship did they have with each other? They were all of one accord in one place. The Spirit of God does not bless divided, striving, fighting, bitter parties. The Spirit of God blesses united, loving, together, one spirit, one heart, one mind congregations. We're going to find in 1 Corinthians... When Paul deals with that church at Corinth, how discouraged he was about them because they were still acting like carnal children, having fighting among themselves, divisions among themselves. There was party strife. That means there was a clique over here that was loyal to Paul, a clique over here loyal to Peter, one to Apollos, and others were saying, well, we're of Christ. We're more spiritual than the other three of you. And so it was pitiful division in that church, and they were a carnal church because of it. Oh, they had some gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they were in error doctrinally and practically because they were divided. I cannot stress enough the importance of what this verse teaches us. They were all with one accord in one place. It's a public assembly when we get together and we're all united together and we're all here that God chooses to bless the most. When I look, and I've said this many times and I'll be short, but when I look and see What most churches allow their members to do on a given assembly or on a given Sunday, you wonder how the Lord can bless them at all. Because there's hardly anyone there. And the ones that are there are many times not in one accord. So every day, every Sunday, every Saturday when you're preparing to come to the Lord's house on Sunday, we want to check our hearts 
and examine ourselves to make sure we're coming with one accord into one place so that God the Holy Spirit can come among us, fill our hearts, fill this assembly, and our worship will be acceptable in His sight. Verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now we had some rushing mighty winds last night. But this is the sound of rushing mighty wind. There was no warning. It was no build-up. All of a sudden, there was a tornado-like force of wind in as far as sound was concerned that something was happening to that room they were in. And the Holy Spirit filled that place where they were sitting. All of a sudden, Jesus Christ had told them, Wait, and I will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And His baptism with the Holy Ghost was not some slight insignificant thing. It was like a tornado arrived on this meeting house. And it filled the whole house. Now here's where Presbyterians get so excited they can hardly stand it. When they see that this is called the baptism of the Holy Ghost and they read ahead and find out that all it was was a tongue of fire upon the heads of those that were there, they say, see? See? All you got to do is sprinkle a little water on their heads And that's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And if if just a tongue of fire on the head was a baptism of the Holy Ghost, then a little water on the head is a baptism of water. But they fail to read verse 2, which we just read. The Holy Spirit filled all the house where they were sitting. That means the Holy Spirit was over their heads. That means they were buried. That means they were immersed. The tongues of fire on their head had nothing to do with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That was a, that was a visible emblem of what gift they had all been giving. That meant that they had tongues on fire from heaven. That they were going to be able to speak in other tongues. That wasn't the baptism. That was a sign of the gift they had been given. The baptism of the Holy Ghost filled the house. They were all immersed in it. They were all buried by it. They were all overwhelmed in this flood of the Holy Spirit that filled the house. Not only did it cover them completely on the outside, it covered them completely on the inside because verse 4 is going to tell us they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Don't come to Acts 2 and try to teach me about sprinkling. This was no sprinkling of the Holy Ghost. They were buried in it because it filled all the house in which they were sitting. If you're sitting in your house and I fill all of your house with water, you have been baptized. All the way you've been baptized. Not not even your nose or your big toe is showing above the water if I fill all your house with water. But what a great event. You know, when when I attended school and took a history class, why don't they have this event in history books? This is a great event. There was a great wind from heaven, and God, the Holy Spirit, came and dwelt among men permanently. Brethren, this is a great event. You've been reading about the Tower of Babel this past week. The Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to undo the Tower of Babel for a time so that His apostles can take away that confusion of language, languages and preach the Gospel. And everyone's going to be able to understand. There was no confusion as to what the Spirit was saying, because He was saying it through these apostles in the language, the native language 
that these men in Jerusalem had been born. Thank you, Lord, for this great event. He had said, it is expedient for you that I go away. Now, if you had spent three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ, would you like to hear those words? Would you understand them? Would you accept them? That it is expedient for you that I go away. If you read the disciples' reactions, they didn't want him to go away. But he said, it is expedient. That means it is better. It is good. It is profitable if I go away. Because if I go away, I will send the Comforter to you. That he may abide with you forever. You've had three and a half years with me, but you'll have the rest of your lives with my replacement, God the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. And brethren, it is our duty to love the Lord our God and to obey this Bible and to check our hearts that we love Him with the first love so that He leaves that Spirit among us because He can withdraw it. And then we are nothing but the congregation of the dead. We are a corpse. We can go through the motions, but we're dead. Lord, help us. Lord, save us. Be thankful for this event. We just prayed for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and in us and wean us from this foolish world and direct us toward Him. Verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They had tongues, cloven, that means split lengthwise, tongues of fire on their heads, and that was an emblem of what the gift that they were given. That isn't the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and neither is it the baptism of fire that John spoke of in Matthew chapter 3. The baptism of fire is when Jesus said, because the Jews rejected the kingdom and the marriage feast that He offered them, He would come and burn up that city. He said the fire is already kindled in another place. That's the baptism of fire. This is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But the tongues that were on their head were telling them the power and the gift was right here. And you know, as soon as that was given to them, it says in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit filled each of these men and women, men and women, that were in this upper room, and they began speaking in tongues, foreign languages. This word tongues, this does not mean the gibberish of Benny Hinn. This, this does not mean the jabbering of Mrs. Benny Hinn. These are foreign languages, and you're about to get a list of 16 of them. God the Holy Spirit has never come into this world and acted like He was drunk, stupid, dumb, or an epileptic. The charismatics want to present Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as an epileptic. On the floor, rolling around, jabbering. That is another spirit. It is not the Spirit of God. It has never been the Spirit of God. These men were proclaiming, and these women were proclaiming the wonderful works of God in different languages. They were not jabbering. They were hearing the wonderful works of God as they're about to tell us. Brethren, this is, this is a wonderful day in the church. You say, why doesn't something happen like that here? If you'd prepare your heart, you'd get something equivalent because the same Spirit is in this assembly and the same Spirit is available to His children that will call upon Him for it. If you're wondering why you've never had the Holy Spirit of God in your life or why you've never had such power in your life, 
There's a couple of reasons. If you love the world, you quench the power of the Holy Ghost. If you allow sin in your life, you grieve that glorious being named the Holy Spirit. And if you do not pray for it, you're not going to get it like you could have it. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? If you will live a holy life, if you'll live a righteous life, and if you will pray for the Holy Spirit, you can have power in your life. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues. That was a gift given for that generation as a sign to the Jews, to unbelieving Jews, that the power of God was at hand. We're taught that in other places. Verse 4, we've already read, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When it says other tongues, that means other languages. The word tongue in the Bible means your language when it's used in a context like this. It doesn't mean this organ hanging in your mouth. It means a language. The Tower of Babel was a confusion of tongues because languages were all confused. They had spoke one tongue when they started and they were speaking a whole lot when the Lord got through with them. Tongue means language. And you know what? Linguistics... Linguists have gone into charismatic assemblies and tried to listen to the jabbering, but you don't even need a linguist to figure out that all they're doing is jabbering because all they have is about two or three sounds that they just repeat over and over and over and over again until you know it's just the rattling of someone under the presence of another spirit. That is not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is not in the world today. It was given to the apostles for a 40-year period of time. We are told that in Micah chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, I will show him. I will show him. That is the leader that was going to rule his flock. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. God was going to give a gift through the Lord Jesus Christ to his apostles to do marvelous things according to the number of days of their coming out of the land of Egypt. Right. You know, this... This week, I dealt with someone who wrote and wanted to know about healing. Was it right to go to a healing revival? And in my effort to try to reduce it to the fewest number of points possible, you know, it was, it was good to take the Apostle Paul as an example. The Apostle Paul at the front end of the 40-year period of time had such a power of healing that a handkerchief could be delivered from the Apostle Paul. And listen, if I could do it, I'd get everyone well right now. But a handkerchief could be delivered from the Apostle Paul, and everyone would be delivered from their illnesses. That's Acts chapter 19. He didn't even have to be there. You know, he could drop a hanky into a FedEx envelope and shoot it off to Timothy, and Timothy would get over whatever he had. But you know what? When I get to 1 Timothy chapter 5, at the end of Paul's life, Near the end of Paul's life, do you know what he's resorted to? Home remedies for Timothy's oft infirmities in his stomach's sake. He told Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities. And what's not said is this, because I can't heal you anymore. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he tells Timothy, I've left Trophimus sick at Miletum. Well, now that wasn't very nice. Why didn't he mail him a hanky? Why didn't he lay his hands on him? 
Because the gift had been taken away. It was a short period of gifts to be a statement to the people who were looking for gifts. And that was the Jews. The Jews had been taught a prophet should be able to perform signs and wonders like Moses had for 40 years in Egypt and in the wilderness. And so the apostles had that same gift. You know, the first faith healer was Moses. Did he heal someone? Does this help you remember? Does this help you remember? Did it come out all leprous? And did he heal it again? Yes. Moses was the faith, was the first faith healer as an example. And the apostles came along to warn the same group of people and to show them that they were from God. Remember Moses said, how will they hear me? I haven't been there in 40 years. I've been here on the back side of the desert. If I go to them and say, God sent me to lead you out of Egypt, all two and a half million of you, they're going to say, who sent you? And the Lord said, stick your hand in. That'll help them figure out that I sent you. Tell them I am hath sent you. So when the apostles could do this and other miracles, it was proof that God was with them. But it only lasted for that Jewish nation in particular because they were the ones that had been taught to look for signs and wonders. And then the Lord took it away. Whenever anyone confronts you about healing, you remind them about Paul, the greatest healer after the Lord Jesus Christ, who could heal with his hanky. He couldn't heal at the end of his ministry. And when he wrote three epistles... To two ministers, Timothy and Titus, there isn't one word in there about them healing anyone. Enough on that. We've been over that subject before, but you need to be reminded, the reason we preach the Word of God is so that we are not led astray or tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and what's going down in the name of Christianity today. Go read a few specials from 60 Minutes or 2020 to see how many people Benny Hinn has ever healed. They can't find one, and they've tried. There have been investigative reporters chasing Benny Hinn for so long, trying to find out two things. Number one, how much money does he make in a year? Number two, has he ever healed anyone? They can't find out either thing. You say, you really got it in for Benny Hinn, don't you? Listen, when someone stands up and pretends to be the minister of Jesus Christ in a little white suit and little white shoes and blows on people and knocks them all down, somebody needs to get up and say something. There's none of that found in the Bible at all. Verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Devout men. You know, we can tell that they're devout because why are they in Jerusalem right now dwelling there? They're there for the feast days. They're still remembering what Moses had taught them, and that was to appear in Jerusalem and to worship God in the city and the place where he had chosen several occasions a year. And so they're there. That would that would take expense and it would take a lot of time to travel in those days. You didn't pick a flight from Rome to Jerusalem and get there in three hours. It was a, they were devout men, and they were from under they were from every nation under heaven. The Lord is about to open up, and you know what happens in the book of Acts. The gospel goes out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Amen. And it's first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Right. 
And so here are Jews from all over the world that come in to Jerusalem for the feast. Verse 6, now when this was noised abroad, this great sound of a rushing mighty wind and men speaking in all sorts of different languages the multi- and having tongues of fire on their head. Do you think there's three things that you'd be talking about or that would quickly hit the newspaper or be run down the street? They had tongues of fire on their head. There was a terrible sound of a rushing mighty wind and they're speaking in all sorts of different languages that they had not known before. When this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And that's when it's a sign. Listen, when you go into a church service and someone's rolling around on the floor, foaming at the mouth and jabbering with two or three syllables, what is that a sign of? Usually it's a sign of epilepsy. And so you need to go grab them and get their tongue pulled out of their throat or they're going to suffocate themselves. I once had to have a roommate that was an epileptic. I remember the first time he did it unannounced to me. And he did just what I'm describing to you, and it it was a little unnerving. Then afterwards he told me, well, this is what you're supposed to do next time. Grab a toothbrush or a comb and jam it down my throat to keep me from dying on you. Okay. I guess that would be getting slain and it wouldn't be in the spirit. What is that a sign of when someone does that? These men had a very real sign, and that's because you knew the language. You had come into Jerusalem, and now you were speaking Hebrew. But you were from Rome, and you were used to speaking Latin. And all of a sudden, you have a Galilean fisherman. And he is preaching to you the wonderful works of God in Latin like you've never heard it done before. He is opening up the Old Testament and telling you about the wonderful works of God in your language. Then it's a sign. If if those conditions aren't in place, it's never a sign. You have to know the language, and the person has to be speaking it, and you have to know that they've never learned it before. Then it's a sign. Just jabbering isn't a sign of anything. These were real languages that they had been born in, that they had had to hop a flight to get to Jerusalem to get away from that language to come to where Hebrew was spoken. I mean, those from Mesopotamia... They, they grew up with the language of the Chaldeans. And all of a sudden, there's Andrew blasting away in the Chaldean language the wonderful works of God. Praise the Lord, brethren. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, if they can raise their hands and shout and jump in a revival for epileptic seizures, why can't we re- get a little excited about what the Lord actually did? Right. Amen. Thank you, Lord. This is what's been given to us. The little society of God's chosen children on planet earth have been given the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. This is a huge event. Look at the language he's going to use in just a few minutes. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke and wonders in heaven and wonders on the earth. This is a huge event. That power is available for every single one of you. But it can't come through the TV or the Reader's Digest. It only comes through His Word and prayer and holy living. And the Holy Spirit can take a hold of your heart and give you the strength that you want for anything you want to do that's pleasing to God. Amen. And they were all amazed, verse 7, and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? 
Now from verse 7 all the way down through verse 11 is are their words. This is the words of the crowd as they're describing what they're seeing. When it says in verse 7, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Oh, our Lord is infinitely wise. Do you believe that about God? That He is infinitely wise? When He chose some men to speak in tongues, He did not choose college graduates that might have taken two or three languages. He chose Galilean fishermen that couldn't speak one language. Do you know that the Galileans could not even speak Hebrew correctly? They had their own little dialect. You say, how do you know that? Because when Peter was warming himself by a fire, a little girl was able to pick up that he was a Galilean by his poor speech. The Galileans couldn't even speak Hebrew correctly. Whenever they came into Jerusalem, everybody would, would hear that rough sound, like two cymbals clanging or somebody scraping their fingernails on a chalkboard, and they'd say, that's from Galilee. And look who the Lord chose to speak these languages fluently from all over the earth. Galileans. So that's the first thing they recognize. Wait a minute. These are, these are men that live around the Sea of Galilee. They're fishermen. They don't even know how to speak Hebrew correctly. And they're fluently preaching in my language in which I was born. I ought to know it from that city. Right. And that's what they're saying here. Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And then he lists 16 language groups. Notice there's nowhere in here the language of angels. This is the most spirit-filled any group of people has ever been. Don't ever let anybody tell you about, well, the jabbering that we do in our church when we're rolling around the floor and foaming at the mouth. That's the heavenly language of angels. Well, why didn't that ever happen in the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Ghost? When, P- when Paul mentions the language of angels in 1 Corinthians 13, he is using hyperbole, right. an exaggeration of the fact to make the point that even if you were to have some language that you might imagine is spoken in heaven, it still wouldn't do you any good if you didn't have love toward the brethren. Just like he said, if you were to give all your goods to feed the poor and let your body be burned, you still wouldn't profit yourself or anyone else if you didn't have love. He's using high, if you had understanding, so that if you had wisdom and knowledge, so that you understood all mysteries. Is that possible? Is that potential? No, no, no. That's a hyperbole to make the point that even if you were to have that impossible thing, that impossible gift, it still wouldn't mean anything if you didn't have love. That's 1 Corinthians 13. When we come here and I read down through this list of 16 languages, there isn't a heavenly language spoken by angels. As far as we know, English is spoken in heaven. Because every time I read about conversations taking place in heaven, it's always in English. Now, some of you are looking at me like I've got a room temperature IQ. But every time I read about conversations in heaven, it's always in English. When they're singing in heaven, it's in English. And whenever they you go to a different language, it'll always say what the interpretation is for me. We don't know what's spoken in heaven. You know what? The Lord has brought so much fruit out of the English language. I wouldn't be surprised if it is English. God deals by progressive revelation. He started with Hebrew. He went to Greek. And now he's in English. And the the Lord's going to come while we're still speaking English. And this Bible is still around. The Lord willing. I wouldn't be surprised if it's English there. But let's not worry about that. And please don't take me to task on it. 
Verse 9. Parthians. I'm not going to go over a map. You can look at these places. They're all over. We start out in the Far East. We start out as we're approaching India through Afghanistan and some other countries where the Parthians used to live. Parthians and Medes and Elamites. That was another name for Persians. And the dwellers in Mesopotamia. And in Judea. Now, why would they say Judea? Because the Judeans should all speak Hebrew. That would have been easy. Because a Galilean couldn't speak Hebrew that would satisfy a Judean. But the Galileans are speaking Hebrew better than they've ever spoken it before. For the first time in their lives, they got an A in Hebrew. And Cappadocia in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. It was very intelligent. It was preaching the works of God in all these languages. When it says from Rome, there were two kinds of people from Rome. Do you see that? Jews and proselytes. There were Jews and Gentiles that had flown in from Rome. That's to keep you all awake while I preach so long. They had flown in from Rome, Jews and proselytes. A proselyte is a Gentile that had converted to the Jews' religion, had submitted himself to circumcision so that he could be treated in the temple and the worship as if he had been a Jew. He's a stranger from the outside, but he met the conditions to be a Jew. All these different people are coming in to Jerusalem and they're hearing the wonderful works of God preached in their specific languages in which they were born, in which they grew up, and they knew what fluency sounded like, and they were hearing it in Jerusalem by Galilean fishermen. Praise the blessed God of heaven. He does things in a way that make it an astounding miracle. These men hadn't been trained in school in any language. They barely knew their own. And so we praise the Lord for what He's showing us here by His power of the Holy Ghost. Verses 7 through 11 are the words of the crowd describing what happened. And it's recorded by Luke through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so we can know exactly what the crowd was thinking. They were overwhelmed. How can Galileans preach such wonderful things to us in languages they've never heard, but that we have heard so that we can try the words as the tongue tries meat to know exactly how it should be said and it's being said perfectly. Praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit can cause you to do things that you don't think you can do. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And do you know how Christ strengthens you? By the strength of the power and might of the Holy Spirit of God. You are able to do what you think you cannot do. By His power. Let's go back and review why you don't have that power in your life. If you love the world, you quench His power. If you allow sin in your life and don't confess it, forsake it, and hate it, you grieve. You grieve. You hurt and offend that being called God the Holy Spirit. And if you don't pray and ask for Him, you have not because you ask not. There's three reasons. And I want a powerful congregation. And I believe you want a powerful congregation. Verse 12, and they were all amazed. Now, I thought it said that in verse 7. Did it say that in verse 7 as well? 
It says it again in verse 12, because there was a lot of amazement. To have Galileans preaching like this was very amazing. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? What is going on in Jerusalem? What is happening? There is obviously the power of God present creating this miracle. Tongues of fire on their head. There had been a terrible sound of a mighty wind that had rushed into that part of the city. And here they were preaching the wonderful works of God in all these different languages. What meaneth this? What is going on? Others, I love the Word of God. If you'll read every single word of it, you will never be disappointed in the Word of God. It says in verse, it says in verse 14, they were all amazed. And then it says in verse 13, others mocking said. Well, that means in verse 12 that all doesn't mean all, doesn't it? How could all mean all in 12 if there were others that weren't part of the all? Never mind, that's just little things that while you read along in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit that we're talking about will teach you how He wrote the Bible. Do you know why He uses the word all in places like this in this way? To comfort you that when some Arminian throws all at you from some other place in the Bible, they haven't made an argument at all. At all. Others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. They're just a bunch of drunks. You know, they might have heard one language fluently. But listen, if you had been born in in Ur of the Chaldeans, and you were familiar with the Chaldean language, and Andrew's speaking Chaldean, but Peter is speaking Arabic, you would think that the rest of them were drunk, wouldn't you? Because it would all be noise that you didn't understand. And so some of them mocked them, saying, these men are full of new wine. Here's a little a little tiny rabbit trail of 30 seconds. When anyone tells you that new wine is grape juice, they don't know what they're talking about. Wine has never been grape juice in any language, at any time, for any purpose. Wine is the fermented juice of the grape used as an alcoholic beverage to relax a man. And when it says new wine, all it means is that's from the current vintage. Everybody knows what old wine is. It's the, it's the wine bottles that have an expensive price tag attached to them when you go into a restaurant. It's the new wine that you can buy cheap. Right. Come on. It's not grape juice. They were accusing these men of being drunk with new wine. Because new wine throughout the Bible makes men drunk. Don't let anybody do that to you with the Bible. They don't know what they're talking about. New wine has never meant grape juice. Grape, the, the juice from the grape ferments immediately. Immediately. As soon as, the, as soon as the juice of the grape comes in contact with the yeast and the skin of the grape, fermentation starts. And it's called new because you have it from the current vintage. You know, when you're looking at that wine list in a restaurant and it says 2005, $9. You know what you're getting. Then it says 1995, $900. Oh, somebody had to have an air-conditioned, dehumidified place where they stored that bottle at their risk and their capital for 10 years and kept it up for you. That's old wine. Does that make sense? 1985 is old compared to 2005. That's what new wine means. And it was a whole lot longer than 30 seconds to explain it. I Listen, you read the whole Bible? Amen. If you read the whole Bible and you read every sentence, and part of what I'm doing here is when you read those chapters in Genesis, read every sentence. Right. In every sentence there's wisdom. Amen. Every sentence. 
Even in that little verse of 13, we can take off from that and prove something that people have tried to accuse us of, of forgetting that they were drinking new wine, which is grape juice. It was never grape juice. They understood it. Why don't men today understand it? Because they have jumped on a bandwagon of social temperance. They don't believe in temperance. They believe in abstention. And the Lord never required abstention from us about wine. He requires temperance and moderation. That's down through verse 13. 120 fearful men and women were away in an upper room praying. They were of one accord in one place and they were all there. Peter was no longer saying, I go a-fishing. Peter said, I go a-fishing in the end of John. He didn't say, I go a-fishing in the first chapter of Acts. They are there praying all together in one place of one accord. And brethren, this is the desire of my heart. And it should be the desire of your heart for this church. Because unless we meet this first prerequisite, we will not have the blessing of the Holy Spirit that we want upon us. No clicks. No divisions. No strife. No bitterness. Unity. One mind. One purpose. One goal. And that is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and have that Holy Spirit fill our lives that we might be pleasing to God. Amen. Who's the most timid of them all? Of the 120. It wasn't the women. They went straight to near the cross when Jesus died. Right. It wasn't John. He was there. It was Peter. Right. It was Peter that denied our Lord with oaths and cursing when a little maid confronted him, and he did it three times in one night before the cock could crow. That's what Peter was like without the Holy Spirit. What is Peter like with the Holy Spirit? Brethren, if you feel that you're intimidated or you're fearful about anything in your life, the power of the Holy Spirit can give you courage you didn't think you ever had. Saul, Saul of Benjamin, the first king of Israel, when he heard the rumor that he was going to be anointed king, what did he do? He went and hid among the stuff. Now, it's pretty hard to hide an eight-foot guy among the stuff, but the eight-footer was hiding among the stuff to keep from being found so that he wouldn't be crowned the first king of Israel. You can read that in your Bible. But do you know what the Lord did? He got, he got the Holy Spirit. The Lord sent the Holy Spirit for a little bit of time, changed his heart, and made him courageous. As soon as he was, they hauled him up there, bashful and shy, put him up before the people of Israel, crowned him king, anointed him with oil. And then there was some trouble. And he went and found himself a yoke of oxen and hacked that yoke of oxen up into 12 pieces, dropped them into big FedEx bags, and shipped them to the 12 tribes of Israel and said, if you're not here to go to war, that's what you and your tribe's going to look like when I get done with you. Right. Whoa! Can you believe that? What changed that man from hiding in the stuff to taking on the whole nation? Do you know what? It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And I'm no Benny Hinn preaching to you this morning. I'm just a little ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ who offers us the spoils of His victory because He came into this world and He was given the Spirit without measure and He died on the cross for us and when He ascended into heaven, God approved of everything He did and gave Him the spoils of victory and He's giving you some of the spoils. Right. 
It's the Holy Spirit. This is why it happened. Jesus sat in heaven for seven days, basking in the glory of heaven's praise and the spoils of victory that the Father bestowed upon Him and crowning Him with glory and honor. And then He sent some of that down for you and for me. He has not left us, brethren. He has sent the Holy Spirit. It is expedient. Believe it. It's expedient that I go away because as soon as I get to heaven, I'm going to have the rewards of my war and I'm going to share them with you. And this is what's happening here in Acts chapter 2 and it's not in any of your history books. You're reading about some caveman in your history books that's hungry and so he starts throwing boomerangs at rabbits. Isn't that terrible? What What they're taught in history today instead of this. We're here for history to this morning. This is the history of God's dealing with His people. Let them be ignorant of it. This is why it's called a mystery of the kingdom of heaven. It's not a mystery to us. It's a big one to them. They don't even care about Acts chapter 2. But it's huge to us. Huge. God, don't take your Holy Spirit from us. That was taking away the candlestick from that church in Revelation. The body without the Spirit is dead. And so would we be. Verse 14. What does the Holy Spirit do to Peter? But Peter. Oh, he's got people asking questions and he's got people accusing him of being drunk. The Peter that we knew 50 days earlier would have turned and run for home. He'd have gone to an upper room and hid himself and locked the door. Did the Lord ever find him in a situation like that? For What does it say? For fear of the, for fear of the Jews. Who were these people? Jews. They were asking questions that he didn't know how to answer. Hold on. They were asking questions he didn't know how to answer and they were accusing him of being drunk. But Peter. Amen. Standing up with the eleven. There's twelve of them again, isn't there? Who replaced Judas? Matthias from chapter one. If you read the book, you'd know. Theophilus knew when he read the book, because this was a letter written to Theophilus. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. Praise the Lord. Lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on. Listen to me. And he did it with a loud voice because he lifted up his voice just like God told Isaiah to do in Isaiah 58. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And so Peter's doing that. And brethren, this baptism of the Holy Ghost was a one-time event in which God poured out the, the Holy Spirit upon the church. But the Holy Spirit has been here ever since for you and for me. Because we're going to read in a few verses, this promise of the Holy Ghost is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even in Greenville, South Carolina. Believe it. It is your fault if you don't have the power in your life. It is not God's arm that is shortened, nor His ear that is stopped up. It's our sins that separate us from the power of God. And I'm not talking about power to heal and throw away crutches this morning, or my son wouldn't be here with crutches. I'd have healed him last night. We talked about it. We're using home remedies. 
Get a pair of crutches and go to the doctor. Just what the Lord would expect us to do. He's very appreciative right now that you are all going to be asking him why he's on crutches. He was trying to come in incognito and hide up here in the second row, but he'll enjoy the attention. Verse 14. Look at Peter. Do you love Peter now? Peter is charged with the Holy Spirit. He lifts up his voice and he says, I know the answer. I'm going to give you the answer. Now listen to me. This is very different from a man 50 days earlier who denied the Lord with oaths and cursing three times in one night. After the Lord had given him a heads up that it was going to happen that night. Isn't this wonderful? Don't ever be afraid again in your whole life. Don't ever be intimidated again in your whole life. Go to the Lord and beg Him for His Spirit. He is able to change you as well as He did Peter. Here we go in Peter's explanation. Hearken to my words. I'll tell you what's going on. Verse 15. These are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now that's a pretty sharp answer, isn't it, for a man who's afraid of crowds? How can they be drunk? It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That's the third hour of the day as time was measured then. From 6 a.m. in the morning for the hour of the 12 hours of the day. Jesus said, doesn't a day have 12 hours and a night have 12 hours? And it starts at 6 a.m. in the morning, so it's around 9 o'clock, the third hour of the day. How can we be drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? Who drinks that early? You say, well, he didn't appeal to the Bible the first pass. No, because he's answering those mockers. First of all, he answers the mockers, and he answers them with with an answer that's appropriate for what they accused him of being, and that's drunk. Then he's going to go after those that said, what meaneth this? And he's going to explain that. But this is that. We're down to verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel 2, 28 through 32. And here we go. Let me read the quote. You've heard it once this morning from our brother Bernie, who read uh, from Jonathan, who read Joel chapter 2 to us. Verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now let's back up to verse 16. We have a crowd of people observing tongues of fire on their heads. They have heard about or heard themselves the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and they are witnessing Galileans speak fluently in the languages in which they were born. They look at those three things and they say, what does this mean? Peter says, this is that. This. Tongues of fire, a sound of wind, of a spirit coming, and of speaking fluently in other languages, this is that which Joel prophesied. 
Now do not try to be smarter than Joel and Peter and the Holy Spirit. If you have ever listened to Jimmy Swagger even once, once by random, he has appealed to Acts chapter 2 because in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit. We think that we're in the only last days because we're 2,000 years later than the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. But these last days are the last days of the Jewish system. That's what Joel was addressing. And, and the future tense, I will pour out. Look at what it says in verse 17. I will pour out of my spirit. And verse 18, I will pour out in those days. That's a future tense verb construction. I will pour. And so there's, there's Jimmy. He, uh, by this time, of course, he's pulled his tie to half-mast. He's mopping his brow. He's been on the piano bench a couple of times, banging away like his cousins on the piano. And then he gets up and he says, this is that. Right now. You know, it doesn't happen anymore. Have you, ever, have you watched Jimmy recently? It's his son doing it. And there's only about 30 people there in an auditorium made for 3,000. There's reasons for that, but that's beside the point for this morning. He looks at those verses, and because they say, in the last days, I will pour out. Now, this is very important Bible lesson for all of you. Right. Austin, it says, I will pour out. Peter opened his mouth and said, I will pour out. Now, when we use the word will, that means it's something coming in the future. So is Peter telling us about Jimmy Swaggart coming in the year 2005 or 2006? No. Peter is quoting Joel, who wrote those words in 500 B.C. about the last days when the apostles would be there. And Joel wrote, of God, I will pour out of my spirit. But Peter said, this is that that Joel told us about 500 years ago. And that difference is tremendous. That right there tells us Acts 2 isn't talking about the modern charismatic movement. Acts chapter 2 and Joel chapter 2 are telling us about what happened on the day of Pentecost. Believe it, brethren. Never let anybody take you away from that. It's future tense from the prophet's perspective in 500 B.C. It wasn't future tense to Peter because Peter said, this is that. Very important. Very important. This is that which was spoken with the prophet Joel. And Peter quotes five verses. And we want to take, we're just going to take all five of those verses and stick them right where Peter told us to stick them. This, in the present time, is that which Joel prophesied about. It'll come to pass in the last days that before God came with his great and notable day of the Lord, that is a day of judgment upon the Jews, Malachi told about it. The other prophets there at the end of the Old Testament warned that God would send... Who who did He say He was going to send? Elijah the prophet, who is John the Baptist, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord come upon those people. John wasn't sent to anybody but the people of Israel. And He warned them that a great day was coming in which they were going to be judged, and they better repent and turn their hearts to God before that day comes. And that's what Joel was prophesying about. And Peter was saying, this is that. God, before He was going to do that, was going to send all the signs and wonders you as Jews would ever need to believe that their report was from God and to repent 
and be saved from that judgment. It shall come to pass in the last days, verse 17, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Can you tell me the names of some women that prophesied the New Testament? Philip's daughters. How many? It's a good question. After hearing all those numbers from you, I lost my train of thought. Well, now we're in trouble. I'm not going to worry about it if you're not going to worry about it. I can't find it for anybody that wants to know later. I'll bet four. Philip had daughters. He was an evangelist, and he had daughters that prophesied. And we're told about that in the book of Acts. So we have examples of women prophesying. And I remember I preached to you from 1 Corinthians 11, maybe a year and a half ago, where Paul gave the rules for women prophesying, because at that time, if a woman was going to pray or prophesy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she was to conduct herself in a certain way and have a head covering. Not just hair, but beyond her hair. Hair is given to a covering for women at all times, but she was to put on something more to show her deference to the men in the presence of God. And we went over that when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So in verse 17, we know some of that fulfillment. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And God would reveal himself to men in a very powerful way. In times past, in the Old Testament, and here's where, here's where we learn about this giving of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they would have the Holy Spirit for short periods of time and limited ministries. Remember Samson from last Sunday? We saw that the Holy Spirit would move him. What does it say? At times. At times. He had special operations of the Spirit of God upon him, but not a continual presence. The Spirit could come upon a man and and make him very cheerful and willing inside to be a giver. And then that Spirit would leave after the man had done the giving that the Lord wanted him to give. Temporary, short-term... Limited gifts. Now Jesus Christ is sending forth His Spirit in abundance to abide forever. And that is the huge difference, the watershed event of Acts chapter 2. The disciples for three and a half years had the wonderful privilege of being with the Lord Jesus Christ in person. But Jesus said, don't worry, I'm going away. But if I go away, I'm going to send you a comforter to replace me and He'll be with you forever. And if you'll keep my commandments and love me and love my Father, my Father and I will come and abide with you forever. And that's through the Holy Spirit. So now He's here forever. And that was the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Jesus went up to heaven. Seven days later, Jesus Christ sent down from heaven the Holy Ghost to be with us forever as our comforter. But He is the Most High God and He operates on His terms, not yours. And if you want Him to bless you, you have to meet the conditions that I've already been over. Verse 18, And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Not in days to come, but in those days. The last days of the nation of Israel, God poured out His Spirit, and Peter said, this is that. And then in verses 19 and 20, He says, I will show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. 
the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We understand this language to be figurative. Now, the Lord did cause the sun not to shine for three hours while Jesus Christ was on the cross. The Lord did rend the rocks with an earthquake and the tombs were opened. But that was before Peter said this. And Peter said, this is that. This is such a great earth-shaking event. This is the way prophets would describe such an event. They would use cataclysmic, apocalyptic, dramatic language to describe a change in the spiritual realm or the church realm or the political realm of a nation or nations. And that's why we have this language here. It is figurative. We don't go into a passage like this where a prophet is using apocalyptic language. That means dramatic figurative speech describing a great coming catastrophe. We don't go into a passage like that and say, what does blood mean in verse 20? You know, I could regale you with the blood of the Lord's Supper that we're going to, that we're going to celebrate in a, in a little bit after our second service from this blood. But I would have no grounds to do so in the Bible at all. This is how we rightly divide the word of truth. Joel wasn't talking about the blood of Jesus Christ or the blood of the Lord's Supper. He was using figurative language to describe a cataclysmic event that was going to affect Israel in the last days. And, and I've taught you these things before, and I've shown you some of those passages. But do not forget them. Amen. You should know in your memory a few places you can go in the Old Testament where you can read this kind of language and have its fulfillment stated to you right in context. The best is Isaiah 13, where God promised that He would destroy Babylon. That chapter is the burden of Babylon. It's the destruction of Babylon. And He uses language just like this. Then you get to the end, and He says, I'm going to send the Medes and the Persians and overwhelm Babylon. But this is the kind of language prophets use. Brethren, You are studying something that hardly anyone understands. You are hearing something. Because God said, I will speak to them by my prophets using similitudes. My prophets do not come out and use plain speech when I'm describing events like this. They use similitudes. The first verse of Revelation says, God sent to Jesus Christ, who gave it to his servant John, signs of things that were shortly to come to pass. How do we know it's signs? Because it says he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. When you signify something, you don't plainly declare it. You use sign language. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know it's sign language. And it's sign language right here. And do you know what? We trust the Holy Spirit of God that through Peter said, this is that. And so when we read about blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, wonders in heaven, signs in the earth beneath, the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood, we look at all that, and all that is is dramatic language saying, I am going to do wonderful, marvelous, unbelievable, astonishing, amazing things in the religious world. And he did. Fishermen came out of Galilee that saw a man risen from the dead and went and preached the gospel in all corners of the earth and could perform any. They were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. He turned the world upside down. There wasn't a priest in Jerusalem that could keep up with the apostles. There wasn't a prophet in Jerusalem that could touch the apostles. 
The apostles could preach at any time, anywhere, in any language, and answer questions from any passage of the Old Testament that had never been seen before. Men had to study for years, for decades, to be doctors of the law, and here were fishermen doing it. It was a tremendous change. Instead of all that animal blood being shed, there was blood shed once, and it's simply remembered at the Lord's Supper. There was baptism being performed in other nations of the earth as Gentiles were baptized by Jewish preachers. Wonders in the earth, wonders in heaven, and upheaval in religious circles. Because God was sending signs and wonders to His people Israel. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, the Jews require a sign. So He sent them all these signs before the great notable day of the Lord come. And what is that great notable day of the Lord? The warning of the judgment upon Jerusalem. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord would be saved from that judgment. Because whoever would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ would receive His warnings that when the abomination of desolation surrounds Jerusalem, get out of Jerusalem and into the mountains of Judea, and you would be saved. Remember Jesus said, Whosoever shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Well, who endured to the end and got out of there and was saved? Those that called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's going to end his sermon with the very same thought. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. You, you live in a very wicked generation that crucified the Lord of glory. God's judgment is coming. Jesus is sitting on His throne and God has said to him, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Right. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Because Peter said, This is that. Peter was not talking about Tim LaHaye's novels. Peter was not talking about something yet beyond us. Peter was talking about something that was going to affect them right then and there. A total upheaval in how God was worshipped. They Just think of the difference. They had all these priests. No longer did they need the priests. They had a high priest. They had an apostle. They had a bishop. They had a shepherd of their souls. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. They could go to Him themselves. They could go in past the veil every single day of their lives. So can you. It was a tremendous upheaval. You can go straight into the presence of Jehovah God, the Almighty God, I am that I am, through the intercessory and mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not need that one visit a year by the high priest of Israel with animal blood. Jesus went into the presence of God once for us all and for all time. Praise His great and glorious name. You can go meet the God of heaven. And the God of heaven will come and abide with you and dwell with you forever on earth through the Holy Spirit. I will. Verse 17. I will. Verse 18. I will. Verse 19. The Son shall. Verse 20. And it shall come to pass. Verse 21. All those future tense descriptions were future tense to Joel the prophet in 500 B.C. They were present tense to Peter because Peter said, this is... What kind of a verb is that? Present tense. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Brethren, this is the history of our church. We are a little band. Very similar in some ways to that little band that sat in an upper room in Jerusalem in the year 30 A.D. Now it's 2006 A.D. 
But God the Holy Spirit was sent down from heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sitting as king. And we're going to read more about him when we come back from our break. But he sent forth that Holy Spirit upon those timid men and women. And look at them, full of the Holy Ghost. Peter lifting up his voice and blasting away at those Jews. And when you read these next few chapters, there was no fear in Peter's body. You know, when they finally did get whipped, did they go crawling home? They were leaping around and running and rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to have suffered shame and a whipping for the name of their Lord Jesus Christ. They had watched him be crucified. They were excited to be beaten. Can you imagine being tied to a post? And being scourged or being whipped by the, by the Jews and rejoicing at it. They had one of the greatest prayer meetings after that. They went back in Acts chapter 5 and they had a prayer meeting of beaten men and unbeaten men and women. And they begged the God of heaven to come on their behalf. That many, that many mighty miracles might be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And that they could keep right on preaching in the name they had been told not to preach in. That's what changed men's lives. And it will change our lives. You have never had a changed life like you are capable of having by submitting yourself wholly to the Word of God and living a holy life and begging God for His Holy Spirit. He has given Him to all of us forever. We'll come back in a few minutes and we'll continue in Acts chapter 2. May the Lord bless by the power of His Holy Spirit the reading and the teaching of His Word to your hearts and souls. Amen. Amen.